0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you would like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at redeemergso.org. Good morning, everyone. Please turn to your neighbor and say, I am so glad that you're here today. I hope you meant that. Well, it's fall kickoff again, beautiful day, 65 degrees this morning. Labor Day is over, school has started back, and some of us are about to be devastated from putting our hopes and our dreams in the athletic performance of 18- to 22-year-old college boys. (laughs) Not me this year. No hope in OSU football. None. We are 2-0, though. So is Carolina. Don't get cocky, okay? It's fleeting. It will not last. As we enter into the fall season, we are beginning a new sermon series here, um, the stories of Jesus, of the kingdom, here in the service guide. And it's a great opportunity for us to look at some of the very direct teachings of Jesus and what it means to be in the kingdom or the values of the kingdom. He was, by far, the most amazing teacher. He was a master storyteller. In fact, when you read his stories in their context, they are powerful, profound, and immensely personal. He was able to speak with such authority, and probably because as he spoke and taught, he conveyed such a profound depth of insight. And Jesus' stories were so personal because whenever he would tell the story, you could find yourself in different places in the story, especially in the parables. And as we see um, week after week that we're going to look at these stories of the parables, we know that Jesus had this way of speaking to people with these simple stories. But there was nothing simplistic about the stories. And in fact, his parables were always... Perspectives on what it means to live in the kingdom or values of the kingdom. His stories help us understand what God truly values, and therefore finding ourselves in that story moves us to value the very things that God values. Every system has a group of values, whether you are a family, an organization, a school, a church, a club, whatever it is, there's some values that you hold near and dear, most important. When Angela Kay and I got married, I discovered that she valued cleaning the house every Saturday morning. It was not my value. (laughs) We had a value clash. Jesus' parables give us a value clash, the way we think about things, what we value and what we prioritize, and then he tells us what God values and prioritizes. And we are faced with this great dilemma Do I move to where God is or do I remain where I am? Sometimes when Jesus would finish, he would say, whoever has ears, let them hear. He does not mean physically. Whoever is really listening to what I say will understand the meaning. But sometimes you can hear the story, the parable, and miss the point. And that's where the parables become a mask. They hide the values of the kingdom. Today, we're looking at Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. I'll add on a couple of verses at the end. This parable is illustrating, in no uncertain terms, the cost of following Jesus or what it would take to be his disciple. It is very clear. The price tag that he lists is very steep. If you add this parable to the parable of the great price, you'll see this great combination of these two parables. In today's parable, he lists the cost, the price of following. In the parable the great price, which comes later, in Matthew, Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. In other words, there's a great cost of following Jesus, but there's also a great value. If you don't Sorry, if you miss the great value, the great cost will feel very harsh. So let's pray this morning for understanding as we look at Luke 14. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word, that it is true that we can build our whole life upon it. On Christ, our solid rock is found. And so we pray this morning as we listen to the cost the great price tag of following you, that you would not let our hearts be dismayed, for in following you we find everything that we truly need and want. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come this morning and be our teacher and guide our hearts to be ready to receive your word so that we may be salty in this world. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so Luke 14, maybe a a structure for this passage, this little small story, three things. First, we see in Luke 14, verses 25 and following, a call to discipleship, a call issued by Jesus. Secondly, we see that the path of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus is surrender. And third, Jesus tells us to be salty. Now, my son says salty means Snippy. Um, I've had to relearn my vocabulary. Uh, You'll see what Jesus means in this one. So, first, a call to discipleship. In this section, which we've been going through, large crowds are following Jesus, and he's gained quite this reputation, which is why there's so many people flocking to him at this point in his ministry. And some are following because they're spectators, they're honestly interested. I was just in Rwanda for a week last week, and we did a a showing of the Jesus film out in a village. Portable screen, projector, the whole like at dark, cows mooing in the background, sheep running through. It was amazing. Um, but the, the way that they got a crowd together was they hired a marching band to march through the town, and it kicked up a crowd. There were hundreds of people that followed just to come sit for two hours on a dirt floor and listen to the story of Jesus. So I found that where Jesus is taught or proclaimed and certainly where he traveled, there were crowds around him because they saw in this person something that they wanted. Some were spectators, and some are following because he's functioning like a benefactor. Some people know he's healed some folks, and he's doing some wonder working. But I want you to see something. Jesus' mission was very different than the mission of our world in 2019. Fame was not his focus. It's safe to say I don't think Jesus would have an Instagram account if he lived today. People were his mission. Not crowds, not fame. When I was a freshman in college, I read a short little book called The Master Plan of Evangelism, written by a guy named Robert Coleman. Robert Coleman's about 90 years old today, and I got to meet him this summer at an event in Kentucky. And I got to shake hands with the man whose book literally changed my life some 30 years ago. He's in his 90s, and he's still meeting and discipling men. And this is what Robert Coleman says, speaking about Jesus. I'll put this on the screen. Jesus' concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with people whom the multitudes would follow. In other words, people were Jesus' mission. Not programs, not events, not the spectacular, but an investment into people. And that's why when Jesus calls us to be his disciples, we see in him a model of one who discipled, who poured his life into his followers, who loved them and affirmed them and blessed them and sent them out. It was not a program, it was a family Let me show you two scenarios in this first part of what it means to be called to be a disciple. The first scenario is this Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. In other words, in this first scenario, Jesus is saying that love for him. Adoration of him is to exceed all loyalties. Love for Jesus is to be so far surpassing that our love for our parents will seem like hate in comparison. In no way is Jesus saying, literally, hate your father and mother. Rather, he's saying, your love for me ought to make your love for your brothers, your sisters, your family, even your own life pale in comparison your love for me. That's what it means to be called to be a disciple. The second scenario is this. Right after that, he says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, listen to this, cannot be my disciple. Think about that. Hey, I didn't write this. (laughs) Jesus said this. Whoever does not follow me, carry their cross, cannot be my disciple. That sounds so stiff, so harsh, so performance-based. But our world, the reason we hear that, and it's so harsh for us, is our world is completely geared towards comfort, not sacrifice. I was flying home on the airplane back from Rwanda, and I think I had something that didn't settle well with me. And so I moved to the bulkhead, and I laid on the floor, I was so dizzy, I thought it was just going to be a bad trip home, and the lady came, and she, she woke me up, and she's Dutch, KLM Airlines, and she said, you've got to get up, in her Dutch accent, and I said, you can arrest me. <laughs> I'm so, uh, I, was so, I wanted comfort above anything else. That's the day that we live in. We don't want sacrifice. We're not geared towards sacrifice. Everything must be comfortable and easy. So when Jesus calls us to sacrifice, to love him above everything else, it creates a little dissonance in us, a little decision point. Do I really want to believe that? Could I really trust that and take that path? Or am I self-interested? These words to a huge crowds of spectators were probably a bit discomforting as well. We're able now to look back on Jesus's words, and we see that what Jesus meant was his cross meant his death. He is calling us to follow him even to his death. But we're able to see now and able to understand what he really means is our surrender. This is often misunderstood. Jesus isn't necessarily saying, lose everything, sell everything, sacrifice everything. But he's rather saying, would you be willing to surrender it if needed? To follow him is paradoxical. Here's the way Jesus' kingdom works. To believe in him and follow him is absolutely free. You bring nothing to the table. But at the same time, it is tremendously costly. It is very costly to follow him. Salvation is a free gift of God. It's free but it is very, very costly. It's costly because it cost him everything. And it's costly to me and to you because it can cost me everything to follow him. The famous theologian of the last century is a a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German theologian who lived and died in the reign of Nazi Germany. He once wrote this, probably one of my favorite quotes of all time. He wrote, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. Let me go back to that. Costly grace. We just heard that the gospel is a free gift, but it is a costly gift. And we must seek it again and again and again. And, above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Sorry, I typed that. My bad, not the song. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for your life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. It is free, but it is costly. I recently received this email from a new friend I made in the last year who's a pastor in Bhutan. Hi, Pastor Alan. Greetings to you from Bhutan. Hopefully you're doing well over there. Pastor, pray for me and my ministry. This day we are facing lots of problems from the Bhutan government. Directly or indirectly, they are giving warnings to us not to share the gospel here in Bhutan. Here, the Christians are suffering under government pressure. Pastor, hope all your family is doing good. Continue to pray for one another. Your prayer and concern will be highly appreciated. Warm regards, Pastor M. As Christians of this day, we just really don't appreciate the sacrifice that many of our brothers and sisters pay to follow Christ in their context, unless we visit them or get to know them. You must be willing to see that following Jesus is the highest and the greatest calling on your life, but it is costly. You must be willing to see that. Let me show you a question out of our service guide, and I think this is well said, and appreciate Jason and Rachel who put this together. In what ways do we convince ourselves that Jesus asks so little of us? What has convinced you in your life that Jesus asks so little of you? He asks so much of you, and that's because he gave so much for you. Jesus has given us two very important scenarios to understand discipleship. No other loyalties above him and a willingness to carry our cross and abandon all things to follow him. Surrender. Now he's given us two case studies in the next section. This brings me to my second point, which is our response. Jesus sets up a parable here, and he says this. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. I want to show you a couple of pictures here. In 1977, the Marble Hill Nuclear Power Plant was started in Indiana. For seven years, progress had been made on the building. It was becoming a fully functioning power-generating facility. It would have been a game-changer for folks living in Indiana. But after spending $2.5 million billion dollars adjusted for today it's 11 billion they only got to the halfway point and the governor canceled the project the company quit they simply ran out of money and they abandoned the project look at some of these pictures this one is after after they've sold off and removed several of the other buildings there's one more picture of the inside it looks like something from a dystopian movie with Jennifer Lawrence or something like that. They sold some of the equipment in millions, not billions. The plant sits today half finished and dilapidated, someday to be truly and finally demolished. What if our life in Christ looked this way? Nothing is more painful in ministry than seeing someone who used to follow hard after Jesus, but has now shrunk back. His parables are so helpful to understand the Christian life. That's why there are so many of them. Some people would say, why can't we just have the Christian life boiled down to a couple of slogans? Maybe something that you could put on your bumper sticker. Because slogans do not sustain you through life. The parables show you the immense dimensions of what it means. Jesus is saying this, if you want to follow me, you have to sit down and you have to calculate the cost. Just as if you were to build a project you must sit down and calculate the cost. Um, My son is at Carolina. We sat down on numerous occasions and we counted the cost. Here's how much it costs. Here's how much you have. What are we going to do? You know, that's part of life. And Jesus says that very same practice of considering and counting the cost is what you must do to follow him. His parables are so beautiful to understand The full range of the Christian life. The parable, this one, is about surrender. Your willingness to pay the price of following him. And this is what I found. As you advance in life, the cost increases. He tells one more scenario. He says this. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider... Whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Imagine the situation. You've got an army. But a larger army is marching against you. If you fight, you lose. So, what do you do? Well, if you're smart, you sit down and you draw up a peace treaty. But I want you to understand it's still a loss, it's still surrender. But it's not a loss of everything. This is how life works. Am I surrendered to what Jesus wants? What he's communicating is that you are to surrender everything you have. And that's a picture of your commitment to him. Like a wise builder or a wise king is counting the cost of of a tower or war, it's an analogy for the need to consider discipleship, for you to consider today, at this age, at this stage, on this day, What does it take for me to truly follow after Jesus? And am I really in for this? Do I really see that following Christ requires everything surrendered? And answer this question maybe in your head. If I lost all things for the sake of Christ in this life, would it be worth it? If I lost everything for following after Jesus, would it be worth it? How you answer that question says everything about how you believe. Listen to the Apostle Paul. This is a great verse. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Think about that perspective. What would it take in your life to be able to say that? I consider everything a loss. I could lose everything. I could give it all away. I could let it go. If what I have truly is Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. Paul says, I consider them garbage. One translation says rubbish. One says dung. Uh-oh, the Bible cussed. I love that. I consider them garbage. Rubbish. A pile of you-know-what In surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ and gaining Him in this life. This is what Jesus is precisely getting after with His stories. One way of explaining our life in Christ is surrender. And everyone surrenders something. When you get on a plane, you surrender your freedom to move about the cabin. When you go in a library, you surrender your right to talk. Shh! When you have kids, you surrender your sleep, your money, your time, just about, no, I'm just kidding. We, we really are used to having surrender. We surrender things all the time. To follow Christ takes an honest assessment. Do I really want to surrender everything to him? And would it be worth it if I did? Surrender is so very difficult. I don't want to let go of things. Yet at the same time, surrender is so freeing. Let me briefly remind you of who we are surrendering to the Alpha, the Omega, the risen Lord, the image of the invisible God, the bright morning star, the door, the gate, the bread of life, the Prince of Peace, the author and finisher of our faith, the author of eternal salvation the consolation of Israel, the great high priest, the head of all things, God with us, the God who saves us, the Lamb of God, the light of the world, the Lord of Lord and King of kings, the Messiah, the mighty one, the prince of peace, the prince of life, the shepherd of our souls, the son of God, the truth, the way and the life. You are not putting your life into someone's hands who is not trustworthy. You're not. When you surrender your life, You surrender your life to the author of life. We place our trust in people all the time. But the place where greatest trust is needed is with Jesus. When I was in fourth grade, my dad took me out of school, very unusual. And he took me to a park and set me on a horse statue. And he looked at me from down below with tears in his eyes. And he said, your mom and I are getting a divorce And in a few short words, my world was shattered. I made a vow right then and there. I I wouldn't have known about it until later in life, but inwardly I made this vow, this promise. Here it was. I will never trust anyone else. Have you ever made a vow because you've been hurt? I'll never trust anyone else. How can you really trust anyone? They'll eventually let you down or fail you. So never trust anyone. That's a vow I made in fourth grade. Or anything. Maybe except even myself. Maybe I can just trust myself, be true to myself. And then I met Jesus. And I realized even I wasn't trustworthy. I had a hard time trusting people. But I didn't realize that I was a person who couldn't be trusted either until I heard the gospel. In fact, none of us can the Bible says we're really great at faithlessness, not faithfulness. But Jesus is the faithful one. I longed to know someone I could trust. I spent years searching. And when I became a Christian, I placed my trust in Christ. I actually don't uh, think the phrase, accept Jesus in my heart, is all that helpful, or even biblical for that matter. I've learned that to accept something is cognitive, but to trust in something takes my whole person, my whole body, my whole heart. My life changed because I learned to actually and fully trust another person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, I have forsaken my vows, and I have learned to trust others. Surrender, the kind of surrender Jesus is asking us to do, is trust. And trust requires an assurance of belief in the one you are trusting. The Christian life is simply, and there is nothing truly simple about it, it is simply trusting in Jesus. Are you growing in your trust of Jesus in this day? It's really difficult to surrender something to someone you don't trust. So if this is the call to discipleship, if this is the path to surrender, what does Jesus say in the next few verses? He tells us to be salty. Let's let's finish with this, my final point. If you do learn to cultivate trust and surrender and follow Jesus, then this is what happens. You become salty. Jesus finishes this parable with a simple concept, saltiness. Everyone can understand saltiness. My wife's uh, dad was born in Grand Saline, Texas, where a Morton salt plant still exists. So if you have a thing of Morton salt, that's where her dad was born. Jesus says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for nor for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Now, I want to show off and make you think that I'm smart. I was a chemistry major in college. Salt is made of two elements, sodium and chloride. This is what sodium looks like. Here's a photo. It rarely occurs like that naturally because it's so reactive. It wants to combine with something else. It's very unstable, and it will gather oxygen or other elements and burn quickly. But when it joins with chloride, chloride is a lethal gas... If you remember in World War I, they called it mustard gas. Chloride would kill you. Together as a compound, salt, sodium chloride, is crucial for your human life. And it's not too extreme to say that without salt, you would die. Number one, salt regulates the exchange of water between your cells and the environment. You can't live without it. It aids your body in absorbing nutrients and disposable of waste into the bloodstream. Without sodium, your body cannot manufacture energy. It's necessary for muscle contraction, as well as the transmission of nervous impulses. Without chloride in your system, you can't digest food and respirate or burn oxygen. An adult body contains about 250 grams of salt. That's about three to four salt shakers on your table worth of salt but we're constantly losing it through bodily functions. If we lose salt, our bodies cramp up and are unable to continue. From his book, Salt, the author Mark Kolansky says this, in times past, salt served as currency, dollars. While it has been responsible for trade routes and the establishment of great cities, provoked and financed wars and played a strategic part in others, Taxes alone on salt have secured empires and inspired revolution. Think about that. The Roman army for a time was even paid in salt. So when you talk about getting a salary, that's where that word comes from. This is the origin even of the word soldier. Soldier is from the Latin word sal, which is turned into solde in French. French. That was a really bad accent. Sorry, Aaron who speaks French fluently. It's how they paid soldiers. So even the term soldier comes from the word salt. The first of the great Roman roads was the Via Salaria, the salt road. The Romans used salt on their vegetables, their greens, which is the origin of the word salad. Salt is crucial to life. In another sermon on salt, Jesus says in Matthew 5.13, you are the salt of the earth. You might say it this way. You are the preservation, the flavor, the protection, and the cleansing of the earth. That's what he means when he says you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. What is Jesus getting at here? He says this, means this. As you trust in him and surrender your life to him and carry your cross for him, you will become very, very salty in this world. As you hold on to your life, hold on to your prestige, your comforts, Your way, self-preserve at all costs. Trust no one. You will be less salty. I think the best way to conclude this sermon or land this plane is to say what Jesus said at the end as well. Whoever has ears for this parable, let them hear today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.